Hi, everybody, and welcome. Today, I am joined by Brian O'Shea, who is an osteopath that I graduated with. So it's been very exciting, very fun to be able to connect to you like this, Brian. Good morning. How are you? Good, good. Really good. How are you? Very well. Yeah. So we, we studied together, we graduated together, and we made it through four years of, of, of training. Of, I almost feel like it's, um, it's comparable to almost like army training. Yeah, yeah, I like your, your description of we made it through. <laughs> it's like, it's like mm, clearly, subconsciously, it was an ordeal. <laughs> well, I mean, it was worth it at the end, but there was definitely times where I didn't think I was going to get through this. No. And it was just having like people like you around who were so helpful and kind and great to bounce ideas off, especially when you had patients in clinic. Like, I have no idea what to do with this person. And so having people like you around was so helpful for me. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think that that was, I, I think there was, there was two aspects to it. We were a very large cohort, which to some degree had its, its downsides in that, you know, we, we were like fighting for patients and things because there's only so many patients, so many clinic rooms and so on. So there's logistical issues there. But, but the positive side was, you had 30 something people and you had 30 something opinions. And, and a lot of the time you get completely swamped, you know, not you particularly, but all of us, you, we, we get swamped with that, that, you know, that's, that sea of opinion. But equally, that, that also was incredibly helpful because you would kind of go, oh, actually, I hadn't thought about that. Or, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Or, oh, yeah, that, that's a really relevant point as well. So uh, there was pros and cons there, I think. Yeah, and that's not even including the opinions of the tutors. Yeah, well. Mm, Which is a whole different thing entirely. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and I think even there was, you had people who, who were much more willing to move with how osteopathy was moving, how medicine was moving, how research was moving. And then you also had people that were stuck to a phil philosophical belief or either had a view that was founded in their training, which was X number of years previously, or their particular experience in their, in their private practice. And sometimes that was a, being polite, a, a challenge, shall we say. <laughs> Do you think that's reflective of the training of osteopathy as a whole or more of an institution? Um, good question. I, I think it's a bit of both, really. I think there is, because there's different strands in it, kind of, there's, there's, there's the osteopathy umbrella, but then there's different, I think there's belief systems probably is, and there's different, probably philosophies more than, than belief systems, really. But there's different, I think each institution trains differently. I think the way BCom trains where, where we studied was very different to my understanding of the way the UCO trains. You know, there was, there was, people, in our, there was uh, people in our year who had done a period of time at the UCO either as their foundation course or, you know, X number of years of training. And, and when you spoke to them, they would say, yes, it's a, it's a very different approach to training. Your training is reflective of, of the philosophy and the history of that particular school. Because when you look back, they were all founded, ultimately, kind of, they were all founded by people who just disagreed with each other, didn't they? And went off and going, I'm forming my own school and I'm not talking to him anymore or them anymore. So they went off and done that. So, so you will get that difference in it. And, and 
I think that that's, that's really valuable because that's the history, that's the heritage in any organization and especially in an academics, academic school. I think what, what osteopathy needs to be is it needs to be really careful that it isn't left behind because the world is moving to evidence-based medicine. And to some degree, even you, you may not believe that that's the right thing for osteopathy, that it shouldn't be based on evidence or it shouldn't be based on, you know, trials and research and so on and so forth, because it's very difficult for osteopathy to sort of, you know, to, to have research to support it and so on. But that's the way the world is moving, I think. Yeah, or that's what I've seen in, in the last year when you come out into the real world, out of the bubble of being trained, and you follow sort of if you look at Instagram accounts or Facebook or whatever it is, you know, it's it's there's a very strong move towards clinical. It's clinical, it's clinical. And I imagine that's your experience in the NHS, that it's a very different thing to working in private practice. Um, absolutely. Obviously, I'm embedded in a musculoskeletal service in the NHS. I'm, I work alongside physiotherapists, and I think their training is very much evidence-based. Yeah. Whereas whilst ours has those caveats, it's, you know, there's this nuance of where we trained of, of naturopathy, and, and those veins run through our training as well, which sometimes isn't as, you know, evidence-based or at least current research-based. Um, and so I think that's somehow where we can sometimes lack. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you if you'd agree with that. Yeah, I would. I think I think that's quite right. Um, and I and I think, but but what I've what we found was that in in our last sort of in the in the final two years that the college become was was moving to a stronger sort of evidence evidence base and i think that was reflective of some of the changes in in the senior levels in management and you know and their history and their work and what what their sort of work history was so it was moving much more to evidence based i think what's really what i found with that was you know i i had no problem with that that was absolutely that was absolutely fine i think that's actually the, the right way to go to tell you the truth is that the evidence and the research <clears throat> and that approach that approach to training it has to be relevant to to osteopathy it has to be relevant to what we're what we were doing so i i you know to me i thought that there was in our research projects i felt it was it was pretty easy to get you know not easy sorry that's the wrong phrase but but the scope of what we could do research on to, to me felt very very broad so for our final for final thing but i think that that's reflective of the curriculum at bcom which is very very broad you know as you said it, it encompasses naturopathy in one end through to you know orthopedics at the other end and and they are very very <laughs> they're very different things really um, and consequently we had a very broad scope which we could do our research projects on and some of them were, you know, incredibly specific related to musculoskeletal research, whereas others were re related. I know you don't want related to, to psychology of people with, with lower back pain, whereas I don't want, which was, you know, quite reductionist in terms of testing a palpatory sensibility over the four years. So, and there's, there's real positives to that. 
but there's also that sort of very, very broad scope means that, you know, how relevant is the research we're doing to the career that we're, we're training for? Yeah, and so do you think almost we could use some of that research or, or I suppose, yeah, use some of that research to almost help propel the profession forward rather than just pick things that we have a personal connection to and we find interesting? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely think yes. But then again, it is, it, it always has to be. And, and <clears throat> my lead supervisor, I mean, was, was exceptionally good because and incredibly pragmatic with the approach and kept saying is, it's undergraduate research. It's undergraduate research, you know, which I think is a polite way of kind of going, your research isn't going to be that great because <laughs> you're not a researcher and you're not doing it under, you know, incredibly strict clinical guidelines that you would see on unpublished published reports. Um, you know, but, but then again, BCOM does have a history of there has been a lot of, um, of research published historically, which is a good thing. And I do think that osteopathy is, 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 lacking, in, is lacking in research. When? But it's a very... Um, because I think ultimately there is, when you come out of college, you have to earn a living. I mean, so that kind of drives sort of osteopaths going into the working world. And as an associate, when you go into the working world, you know, you, you will work incredible, you will work incredibly long hours. And then there is a point where if you have built up a practice and so on and so forth, <clears throat> unless you have a, a, a desire to do research, there's economic drivers, there's time drivers, there's family drivers, you know, there's all those things that is, is inhibiting somebody kind of going, yeah, I'm going to walk away from all that and I'm going to go and do, do research, I think. Um, there's also, I think, my understanding, again, is, you know, I, I could be wrong on this, is that there is limited kind of central available funding to do that research. And most, you know, when you look at pharma um, research done by, by drug companies and so on, the amount of money they spend on research versus what's a successful item comes out of it, you know, if they get one in 10 or one in 20 or one in 100 or whatever it is, you know, that, that pays for everything for the next 25 years and so on is. So if there was more central funding made available, be it through, you know, the, the Institute of Osteopathy or GIOSC or whoever. I mean, it wouldn't be GIOSC because that's not their job. Their job is to protect the public. Um, I think it would drive it forward. If it's left up to individual osteopaths to do it, I think it's, it's always going to be sparse because people just don't have the means, the personal means to do it, you know. We're entering into a profession to earn a living. Yeah, and that's a really good point because it's not from a lack of institutions because we have, you know, the IO. There is, I think it's Encore. Yeah. Um, who facilitate research as well. We certainly have um, individual osteopaths who are at the forefront of developing research. Um, but like you said, it, it's, we've got to earn a living. And as, as an associate, you're not going to do that very easily, at least yeah. not in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, and... and we're, we're a small profession, 
you know, that's why uh, there's keeping number, isn't there? It's about 5,000 practicing, yeah. practicing, practicing osteopaths in, in the UK. Nat, I, I, was, I was listening to Chief Executive Nat West saying this morning, they have 10,000 people that work in their branches. <laughs> they kind of, and then they have, what it, it's like 20 or 30,000 people who work in back office and working and, you know, so, you know, that organization, that bank has twice as many people working in their branches then there are osteopaths who have completed, you know, a minimum of three years, probably four years, four years training. Is we're still a very, very small profession. You know, when you look at accountants or look at lawyers, there's like tens of bloody thousands of them there. And and speaking of training, you obviously you clearly we're not eighteen year olds, both of us. <laughs> um, you know, we didn't come into 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 training fresh out of school. You had this whole other career before you trained as an osteopath. Yes, I, I worked in sort of business, kind of. I, I I qualified as a as a as a chartered certified accountant, like ninety ninety or ninety somewhere early ninety one ninety two something like that. So I I worked in in business for best part maybe twenty five years at a fairly senior level, and. I got to that point where I just thought is th there was a number of there was a number of reasons really there was very practical reasons of the company I worked for was moving in a direction that I I, I had zero interest in um, so I kind of got to the thing and said well I don't really want to work for for this particular company because th the area of business is moving into is is of no interest to me and that's very difficult to go in and do 40 50 60 70 hours a week doing something that you have like zero interest in so i was kind of got to that point and said well i can go and i can switch companies and i can go and do the same thing somewhere else i just thought really do i want to do that and i had had um when you used to speak to people in our year bless you when you speak to people in our year was, uh, other than people that had kind of come straight out of A-levels and, had, and had, had went into it, anyone that was sort of had any, you know, experience between sort of secondary school and, and osteopathy, a lot of them had a very common thing of their, their first experience or their experience of osteopathy was related to when they had injured themselves in some shape or form, some shape or another, you know, and that was reflected also in a lot of the tutors. It was like, why did you become an osteopath? Oh, I used to play sport or I was a dancer and then I managed to, you know, bust both my knees or whatever it was and I went to saw an, an, an osteopath. And in, in my case, I had, an, I had a, a kind of, I had a number of quite serious motorcycle accidents and you'd expect that I would have learned after the first one not to buy any more motorbikes that that didn't register at all so i just kept buying them and i kept crashing them and I, so i had a really good experience of osteopathy i tried other other modalities i tried physiotherapy and i tried chiropractors and you know this isn't saying anything negative about them was it it, it didn't work for me you know that particular modality just just didn't work for me and i think i was very lucky in that i found an osteopath who 
it did work for me. And, and the, the thing I noticed about them was they were, they were incredibly, they were very, very interested at consultation um, about m my work life and my home life and the context of my injuries within my work life and my home life. So it was like, yeah, you, you've completely buggered your back and, you know, whatever. But how does that affect you in terms of your home life? Because I have four small kids at that point. And how does it affect you when you're, when you're working 70 hours a week? So, and, and they were the kind of, they made up, other than when I was asleep, they made up 99% of my, you know, waking hours. I was either at work or I was with a, young, a, a, a large young family. And then the whole treatment was based around that. How to improve that working, how to improve that home life. And, and that really resonated with me. That absolutely resonated with me. And I just kept, every time then I would have another horrible bloody accident I would go back to them and they would kind of sort me out and then I would I would sort of keep going through and eventually sort of you know he that guy retired I mean he was he must have been in his 80s when I kind of saw him first but he was still he was still kind of going um for probably seven eight nine years after that and so when I wanted to make that change I thought do I just want to go and do the same thing somewhere else just do more finance director in a different company are the kids have grown up, they've mostly buggered off. I've now got an opportunity to do something else. I will be honest, I didn't think it was going to be as bloody hard as it was. I really didn't think. I absolutely agree. <laughs> I remember talking to my partner, Sophie, and going, this is going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be good university. I'm going to have so much free time. I'm going to have a complete work-life balance. I'm not going to be working weekends. I'm not going to be doing this and that and the other. And it was like, I just replaced doing 70 hours a week work with 70 hours a week, you know, either being at college or studying or doing the endless exams that we had to do in first year and second year. <coughs> so I think that that's... Um, for future students, I think that's a really important thing is to understand that if it's an incredibly difficult course, it really is. A, it's an and I think it's, you know, the, the intensity of the course is, isn't, I don't think, recognized subsequently. You know, if, if you say to somebody, oh, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer or I'm an accountant, people instantly can sort of understand and visualize the difficulty of your training to get to you that point. Whereas if you're an osteopath, they, they have no concept of kind of all that academic stuff that we had to do through those four years. Yeah, and suddenly I remember talking to GPs whilst we were doing our training even after, and they had no idea that we did cranial nerve testing and we yeah. did pathology and diagnosis and we analyzed diet diaries and we did all these other things on top of the medical sciences that we took mm -hmm. whilst training. So absolutely agree. And I'm really glad you said that because a lot of people will come into, you know, or apply for the profession thinking, oh, it's like a normal uni degree. I'm going to get days off and, and it's far from it. 
And I don't think that's specific to our university. I think it's just any osteopathic institution is going to be like that. I don't think it was just ours. Um, Whereas, I mean, I did my first degree in psychology and it was in comparison, holy moly, like I had days off. We didn't get a single day off a BCom. No, no. And, and, And the other thing is that is what people don't forget is, or what people don't realize is you have that, it's that mental. So it's that it's, you have that mental fatigue by the time you get to the end of the year, but also because we have to develop what's essentially a, a manual skill, you know, is, um, and we, we, and you do that by practice. And so when physically, it's incredibly physically demanding as well, both as you as a practitioner and as when you're training, because, you know, you do it by repetition over and over and over and over again. But it's also incredibly physically demanding because you have to act as a model for your colleagues. So what you're having in, and if you kind of think about it is by the, by the end of year four, you know, we're, very, we're good at our technique, our you know, let's be honest, we are good at our technique and we can do it and we don't hurt people. That's not what it was in first year, you know, where, where we're learning it from absolute scratch and we're doing mobilizations and so on. And then in second year, when we're doing, you know, HVTs and so on and so forth is you're learning it. So the very first time you learn it, or the very first time you do it, you know, be honest, we are not good at it. You know, and we're more likely to kind of, you know, twist somebody's neck and sort of put it over, lock it, and so on and so forth. By the time we get to year four, that's done. So it's a, it's an incredibly physically demanding uh, course, and it's and it's incredibly mentally demanding. So you sort of come out the end, and by the end of year four, and you just think, oh, I'm just completely knackered. <laughs> I do and miss, broken. I do. I would say I do miss, you know, having my every joint, literally every joint in my body mobilized or cavitated, mm-hmm. HVT. Yeah. Um, what was that like in terms of your own body, you know, being a therapist and then being worked on for continuously over four years and now maybe not having that on your body as much? During, while we, while we were doing the training was, um, I found... I, I, it wasn't a kind of universal. It wasn't universally good. It wasn't universally bad across the whole, the whole thing. Different, I found that different parts of my body, and, and this has been the same throughout my whole, tra- uh, throughout my whole um, uh, treatment when I used to get treatment from when I had the injuries and stuff like that was. Certain treatments, I, would, I respond incredibly well to. You know, I love having my neck cracked. It, I get... And I know all the research says that it's all, you know, only five minutes, you know, and so on and so forth. But for me, but research is starting to show now that there's actually a huge psychological element to it as well. You know, and if something makes you feel better, you generally feel better, don't you? (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, a bag of crisps makes me feel better. And therefore I feel better. It's all in my head. and things. But nonetheless, that's absolutely fine. Coming out afterwards, I think, and working in private practice, where, you know, pre-COVID, where you will be doing back-to-back patients, you know, across six or seven hours, you, I would feel broken at the end of that. 
but I think the one thing I would say is that <clears throat> in you get used to it incredibly quickly because and if you remember during our training, we were, we were always like posture, 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 get your head up, stop looking at the floor, do this, you know, you're arching your back and the, and the tutors would come and move you around. But because we might only do two hours of practice in a day, and maybe across that two hours, we might actually only do an hour because we'd have to be shown how to do it and so on and so forth is, that you really wouldn't take any notice of it, or I didn't at least because I wouldn't feel any aches and pains from the fact that my head was down or I was twisted or whatever it was and my back it was. But when you go into private practice and you've adopted that weird position, you know, across 10 or 12 patients back to back, you suddenly very quickly realize that the plinth is just a bit too low or the plinth is a bit too high or you're leaning too far forward. You know, your body, your body tells you that and, and also part of our training is, you know, we become so attuned to every tiny little niggle. Absolutely. And I think it was so important what you said before was, you know, and how powerful it is when you become attuned to that and you can recognize that in yourself. And then, so if you can do it for yourself, then you can then empathize or put yourself in that situation for your patients as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there was... Because I've thought this, about this quite a lot. And I remember saying it at, at the time when, it, when I was a BCom was that, that there was the vast majority of, the, of our cohort were young people. So somewhere between age 18 to 21, 22. I don't really know what the, the, you know, the percentage split was. But that was the vast majority of it. And it was that point you made there just about empathy and understanding and so on and so forth. And I was continually absolutely astounded by the young people in, in our year, you know, where the patients, and maybe it was just the patients that become gets, you know, you would get a lot of patients and, and especially with that link to the, to the Camden CC, the, the trust or whatever it was that when we, when we had the NHS patients coming across. Um, and and the problems that those patients had, be it psychological, be it lifestyle, be it, you know, whatever, over and above that particular MSK issue that they were coming to see us with, you know, and then they would come and they would kind of rattle off that list of medication that people were playing and so on and things was. I was just absolutely astounded by the ability of 20, 21 year olds in our, in our year to be able to deal with all that. And I, I, I was kind of, I, you know, hats off to those, to them. That, that, because you just think that level of maturity that they had to deal with that. And I imagine some were kind of going, oh my God, what am I dealing with this? But you, you know, they would never visualize our sort of, display that in front of patients and things and and that was astounding that was absolutely astounding and and the thing going in as a, as a sort of mature student is that you kind of if you're sensible you you can feed off that energy and i think what's the the, the one bit of advice that i would give to any mature student anyone that's mature that's thinking into into osteopathy is that you know 
I think it's very important to don't be the grumpy, cynical old bugger in the corner, right? You know, because the vast majority of the people that you're going to be studying with are going to be young people. Let them become cynical, grumpy old buggers in their own, in their own time, you know. It's, it's not your job. And, and actually, if you kind of shut up and listen and keep your grumpy, cynical old bugger opinions to yourself, you learn so much. You learn, you absolutely do. You see a whole new perspective in the world, which you generally wouldn't get to see because you won't get to see that from your kids because it's an entirely different dynamic. And if you're coming from business or, you know, another profession, then you're maybe at a more senior level than you would be dealing with the young people who have joined the organization. So you don't get that exposure there. And that's hugely rewarding. It's hugely enlightening to see that. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear because I thought what you did really well was you meshed really well with everybody, be it the younger um, sort of ages of a cohort with the older, because there were some of us that were slightly older, like 30s and above. Um, but what struck me was, you know, you went out with everyone. We went to the pub, we went to parks, we studied together. There was never, for me, this sort of barrier of, oh, you're a mature student. It was just all of us in it together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that was, that, I think that was absolutely critical to it because the thing is you're, you, you're not going to get through this course by yourself or you wouldn't get through that course by, by, by yourself. And I think it's, it's really important because you establish that kind of, it's, it's like working in a team, isn't it? You establish a complete team ethos. And you'll have individual groups and that's entirely understandable because people will be more drawn to other people who have similar outlooks or whatever, whatever it is. And I think the other thing that was, was really, really helpful as well was you had lots of different nationalities. So, and I, and I think that, I think that worked. I mean, when you looked at our, our cohort, there was, you know, there was, Brazilians, there was Hungarians, there was Italian, there was Spanish, there was French, there was English, there was Irish, there was Scottish, there was, was anyone Welsh? American. There was American. Uh, you know, there was, there was a whole range and they bring their culture and they bring their views as well. And that, that's really, really good as well because while osteopathy is kind of an academic there's an academic medical clinical element to it. And then there's all the manual therapy as well. Ultimately, ultimately you're dealing with the public, you know, and if an American comes through the door, you need to be able to connect to that person. You need to have a level of understanding. I mean, it kind of helps if you know where America is, you know, <laughs> you know, at a thing. but if French people come through you because there was French people in our year you learn an element about that French culture or the Italian culture or be it the Hungarian or the Brazilian or you know whatever it is you, you learn that and and whether you consciously or, or subconsciously you will absorb that and especially in London I mean yes. it's so multicultural anyway we have all these nationalities that were working through the walking through the door anyway so i think yeah absolutely yeah and having having obviously with hindsight everything is different but i was having a, a conversation with somebody else and they did a part-time course and so thinking back if you had to do it again i won't ask if you do it again because 
that's probably a loaded question that I probably <laughs> would be able to answer. Well, I think I know what I would say, but um, if you had to decide between sort of doing it again as a full-time or a part-time course, do you think you would have changed anything? Um, for me personally, I think, I think I would do it full-time. It's just, it kind of what you said earlier about, you know, getting through this is that, you know, there is no two ways about it. It is not kind of a jolly fest from the day you come in to the day you leave, right? Despite the photos and the brochures and on the websites of students sitting around smiling and so on and so forth and so on, you know, mostly it's students, you know, with their head down studying, you know, just trying to get, trying to get through this. And I think with part-time, I mean, hats off to people that do it part-time. I have no idea how they can do it part-time. You know, the intensity of the course itself and then actually having to work as well and doing it over that six years. For, to, I'd, have found that in, I'd have found that very, very difficult and I probably would have given up to tell you the truth. Um, but I, I suppose that depends on the nature of the job that you're doing in, in addition to your study as well. Um, but also, I think that the way the part-time works is that it can kind of, other than that manual element and all the technique and stuff that we learn and, and the clinical training, and I know with the manual, with the part-time courses, they become a, less, a lot less part-time when you get to the latter stages because you've got to get your clinical hours, you've got to get your practice in, you've got to do all those things. So I think if you could get to that point, you'd probably finish it. I, I personally would have found it incredibly difficult yeah. given, given the amount of time that we work. But I do think there's an element of that that's partly driven by the institution that we went to. So I remember thinking about the exams and stuff. And I remember saying to the, at one point, kind of the head of osteopathy, where I said, is, look, you know, in our first year where there was nothing, oh, I can't remember the thing, but it's essentially the mocks. You know, we, by the time we got to year three, possibly, where you kind of have, you know, your OT exams, your technique exams, the first two would be mocks and the final one then would be the proper assessed one. You know, we didn't have that in year one. And I remember counting it and kind of counting across between OT exams, soft tissue exams, written exams, coursework, essays, whatever it was. We essentially had an exam every one and a half weeks. Wow. You know, we had, it was like 23 or 24 exams across a 38 week period. So it's, it's just, Sorry, I've got a cat here that won't bugger off. Let me get rid of it. Um, so we, we kind of, you know, that, that's nuts, really. That's absolutely nuts. Yeah. You're learning to pass exams. You're not learning for the sake of learning. Well, and this is my thing. So having, I mean, been in practice now for maybe just under a year, um, how has that translated for you from going from that theoretical and lots of practical to now being in private practice on your own with patients in terms of that knowledge base? Um, so uh, some things, 
I th it's it's been very it's been very different it's been very different so and i think is the the near the two things i think you can compare was is when we were in clinic in year 4 with dealing with patients coming in all be it new consultations or be it um uh treatments versus working in private practice is that and in in our training the clue is kind of in the word title training is we're there to be trained and so on and the safety of the patient is paramount and so on and so forth um but there is a very very strong ev emphasis on this is a training institution and it's kind of it's for the benefit of the of the student you know but yes you do have to treat the patient yes you do have to try and alleviate their pain yes you have to do all their concerns and so on but it's very much of within a training context. In, in private practices, I found the patients come in and they want to know what's causing the pain, how can they stop doing it again, and how are you gonna make that pain go away really quickly? And that, that's kind of what it is. And that's what they want. And they don't want, you know, because they're paying hard-earned money to you um and they want it's a results it's a results driven business you know it really is it's kind of i i always feel that is yeah and there's always exceptions and things but you've essentially got three treatments to get them an awful lot better that that that's your that's your window yeah that that's what they want to see to, and so i think that that's 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 the biggest difference is that there is a a shift from in in the teaching college the emphasis is on the student in practice the emphasis is on the patient and how do you manage those expectations in private practice where you are under more pressure to get people better, to get them to self-manage, to educate and do all these things within these half hour or an hour, depending on where you practice, these treatments? I, th I think it's the, the fundamental thing is you absolutely have to be completely honest with the patient, completely honest with the patient. So if, if somebody comes in and they've kind of, if they've had, and they, they say, I've had this pain for five years, you have to be really honest up front and say, I'm not going to make this go away in essentially an hour and a half over three treatments. It's not going to happen. You've had it for five years. I'm not going to be able to unwind that in, in an hour and a half. You know, we might be able to do it in six treatments. We might be able to do it in seven treatments. But to achieve that, there's a very you know, you're going to have to do some work as well. Um, I, there's, there's some tricks that we kind of get taught is in, in the final years was, and they're very subtle things, but I think they make an enormous difference is things like, um, I, I never prescribe exercise. I prescribe movements. I, because people go exercise, well, that isn't that running up and down the road and getting hot and sweaty. You know, that's kind of what people see or see as the word exercise. So I'll always talk about movements. I want you to do these movements. And also, I think it's 
getting them to do things that doesn't mean they have to spend money, buy specialist equipment, take out a gym membership. You know, it's getting them to do things that have the least impact on their day-to-day -day schedule. So it's like, you can do this before you get out of bed. You know, you can do this when you're sitting down at work. You can do this when you're sitting watching TV. I want you to do this. Or all I want you to do is get up and walk around for, for two minutes every hour. That's, that's all you have to do. You know, and, and people, people will do that, is if you go, well, you've got to buy this band, and then you've got to go buy a kettlebell, and then what I want you to do this, and I want you to do that, and I want you to do those things, is, you know, they'll come back to follow me and go, yeah, yeah, I was doing it, definitely, I was doing it. And you go, show me. And <laughs> they were not doing it. <laughs> they weren't doing it. Or they've come up with some new variation that you've never actually even seen. Yes, exactly, yeah. Absolutely, it's like, that's interesting. <laughs> I think it's really, it's such an important shift that what you were describing is you, you went from exercise-based interventions, which we were taught at school, at university, to movement. And I think that's such a more powerful way to prescribe movements that people aren't going to have this, or some people aren't going to have this barrier to. Yes, yeah. And it's like... <laughs> The, the, I just, with a lot of ones, with things like lower back pain or hip pain or knee pain or, what, or whatever really is, I, just, I say to people is just walk more. Yeah, we're designed, we're designed to walk more. You know, so th that's what our function really is. And I just go, just, just walk more, just walk for 20 minutes, 20 minutes a day. And where you will have, and with people where they have very, very acute pain is, I think the other thing is you have to give them realistic goals. I mean, I, I do, <laughs> I'll follow sort of the osteopathy hashtags and so on and on Instagram and Facebook and so on and so forth. And I always find it really amusing where you'll get, you'll have osteopaths going, oh, here's some exercises for sciatic pain. If you've got sciatic pain, do these. And you just, and I, I had some, I got some last, last year. I'd never had it before. And I got a, a, a disc bulge sort of, it was just before I was about to start going, going in my clinic. So I had the delay going in, going in for a month. And I, I had it for two, two, two weeks, I had pain. And I have, you know, all my sporting injuries, and I played, you know, Gaelic football, full contact sports as a, as a young man, you know, motorcycle injuries and so on. I have never experienced pain as I did with sciatic pain. And, and I mean, it was to the point of one day the pain was so bad. I remember it was the pain. I just got this shooting pain that it was so bad. My legs just buckled underneath me and I just went bang and hit the floor. And then you'll see on Instagram, somebody going, like yesterday I saw somebody going, sciatic pain is, you know, stand on your good leg and then bring your other knee up to your chest. And I'm just thinking like, you've never had sciatic pain. The best you can do is kind of get through the day without breaking down and crying <laughs> when you've got it. And I found 
the best single thing for that was just walk. You know, you would be in agony for 20 minutes, but then it would start easing off and easing off. And it was like, it would disappear. And then as soon as I became, you know, a more or sedentary again, pain back instantly. So I think there is, I think what's incredibly helpful in, in, in osteopathy is if the practitioner has some experience of that particular instance, whether it is back pain, neck pain, shoulder pain, elbow pain, whatever it is, you know, you can, you can absolutely relate to what, what, what that patient is experiencing. And I think you can also then say, look, this worked for me. I done this and it worked for me. That doesn't mean it would work for them. And unfortunately, with some, with that sort of thing is, that just comes with experience. That just comes with, with sort of, you know, years on the planet. The longer you're here, the more likely you are to do something to yourself. Yeah. Um, but I do, with acute pain is, you have to give, real, you've got to give realistic goals. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So it is like, I just want you to walk five minutes from the house and walk five minutes back. Tomorrow, make that seven minutes. The day after, make it nine minutes. Kind of, if somebody's in acute pain and saying, I want you to walk for an hour. I, That's would, the Andy Mansfield of you. I never thought I'd ever say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a good thing. That's a good thing if he's yeah. listening. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And. In that case, I suppose I'm the best person to treat fractures because that's what I keep doing to my body. <laughs> yeah, especially your fingers. Yeah, fingers you can't see right now, but I've got a moon boot on because <laughs> I've got a stress fracture in my foot. <laughs> Playing volleyball. As an osteopath, please yeah. don't play volleyball. Yeah. Um, not a good idea. Yeah, I think it, it I, but unfortunately that, that just, that's just experience and that, and that comes with you know, if, if you're 22 or 23, you, you know, you get injured and you just spring back, don't you? As you, your, your heat, your powers of recovery are incredible when you're in twenties and you just pop back and things. It becomes, as you get older, the, the chance of getting injured becomes higher and the recovery time takes longer. Excuse me. Bless you. Yeah. And I think that that, that just helps that, that, that absolutely helps. Yeah. And so what are the typical type of patients that you're seeing in private practice or pre-lockdown in private practice? Uh, it, it's the classic back pain. It really is the absolute classic, classic back pain, either lower back pain or mid, or mid back pain. And then in a lot of things, it is, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's driven by occupation. You know, so it is either sedentary, either I get up, I kind of have my breakfast, I do this, I travel to work, I sit in the bus or I sit in the tube or I stand in the tube and I go and I sit down for six, seven, eight hours and I come home and I do some chores and activities around the house and then I sit down and I watch TV. Or people go to the gym and so on. So it's like I go to the gym and I lift heavy things or whatever they do for, for that hour, two hours or whatever it is a week. But predominantly their life is of, of a sedentary, sedentary nature. And or they're doing manual labor, which involves repetitive activities, 
you know, like painters and decorators or window cleaners or, you know, carpet fitters who will be doing that same repetitive activity. And they're putting their backs in a position that just causes stress, stress and stress on the back. So that's, that's very much as around that. And again, you get people, their necks all kind of just tighten up and so on. And using computers where you're essentially in that position, your know, shoulders rolled in, rolled in. And overwhelmingly, I would say the vast majority of patients. But then you will get patients who will come in things like plantar fasciitis or um, metatarsalgia or something like that as well, or golfers, tennis players, very much that, that classic. The big difference, I think, that I found in private practice be, between versus the patients we had in training is it was it was over i think very common for when we were doing our training and especially those patients that were coming through the nhs for those to, uh, to have systemic problems just don't rarely you see it and the the medication lists in private practice are generally a fraction of what they were for our training. I mean, is that the same experience you've had? Yeah, so it's a bit different for us because obviously they have to go via GPs or some of them are self-referred. So by the time they see us, it's six to eight weeks. So they're no longer in that acute phase. Yeah. They're in that subacute or even chronic phase. Um, so I agree. I don't see as many systemic issues as much as we did um, during training, but especially, and this is probably with some of the older patients that come in, their, their list of medications can be a mile long. And, mm. you know, and this is where I'm really thankful that we, we had all this pharmacology um, training because sometimes, you know, their neuropathies can be caused by the medication. Yeah. And if you don't know that, you're just going to be treating them till the sun comes down and they won't get any better. Yeah, complete, yeah, completely agree. I mean, uh, but in, in private practice, what I found was that the patients, because they're coming to pay, have generally, they're of a, they're of a, a, a higher socioeconomic position. And consequently, their, their general overall health is going to be better than, than the patients we, we used to get in our, our training as well. But I think is. We, because you're in the NHS, you will see, you know, it's kind of a continuation, really. Of, it's a similar patient profile as, you, as we had at BCOM. Absolutely. And so thinking of that first sort of year now in practice, what were your expectations when you graduated before you started working in private practice? And have those expectations changed a year in? I think if you had asked me, I think if you said, what's your expectations when we were in year one about going into private practice versus expectations when we were in year four? I think if, I think when we got to year four and you're in clinic and you have a lot more time with the tutors on a day-to-day -day clinical, in the clinic basis, they have a lot more time and they can tell you what it's like in, in private practice. And there is an element of preparing us for private practice in, in year four. So I think that, and a lot of those, 
ideas that we would have had in year one, they kind of get washed away somewhat by the time you get to year four and you have a much more realistic view of it. And you do realize that I think if you come out of year four and you, and you, you haven't realized that it is a results-based business where you have to get people better and you have to get them better, get them better quickly. You know, you don't have to cure them for want of a better phrase, but they need to see an absolute improvement between the first visit and the second visit. Um, I think the, the thing that, that really struck me is that the difference is you're, you are completely on your own and it is entirely your own decision making. That, that's it. You know, even when we were in year four and even when we had done our FCCs, we still had to kind of take the case history, go and talk to the tutor, come up, give a list of differentials, come back, you know, do the testing, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, and then go through all that. Whereas you walk in and from the very first patient, you're in the room by yourself with that patient. And it's all you. We know that we, it's going to be just us in the room with that patient. But until you, until you do it, until yeah. it's that first time, it, it's, still, it's still a shock, isn't it? Absolutely, because I started off in private practice when we graduated and that first patient ever that you get and there's no one to call, it's, it's a little, it's a, it's a, it's a, it can be a little scary. Yeah. Um, it's empowering though, because all of a sudden you don't have to call a tutor in if you want to do an HDT. It's your clinical judgment mm -hmm. and you can just do it. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And um, the, the other thing, that, the one thing that I, I would say was that when, even when, while I think we were in year four, there was, there was some, there was a degree of pressure on us to ensure that actually when the patient came in for whatever was it, I can't remember, it was an hour or an hour and 20 minutes, whatever, an hour I think was the first, whenever it was, was that there was, there was some pressure on us to, to get treatment in that first consultation. But there was a, we kind of get a little bit of challenge if we didn't get it in. And some tutors would be a lot more saying, you should have treated, you need to treat in that, you need to get it done. In, in private practice, that's not negotiable. I found that 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 wasn't negotiable, that in that hour, you need to get at least 20 minutes treatment in, you know, that, and I think, you know, that, and, and I think patients expect that as well. Yeah, because now they're paying yeah. hard on money. They want results, exactly. results driven. Yeah. It's the ones who clearly are frustrated by the fact that you, you're having to do this consultation and they're like, they're trying to climb on the couch. And you're going to go, no, you, I need to ask you these questions. They're going, yeah, but I just got to pay shoulder. I just got to pay my shoulder. Yeah. And there are protocols in place for a reason. Yes. Yeah. Whether it's safety or, you know, um, assessment driven, it's, this is the procedure and that's how it works. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, it, and I think you explain, and if you explain that to patients, like 99 out of 100 are completely reasonable. And they go, okay, yeah, now when you say, look, it's for your own, it's for, I need to determine whether you're safe to examine and safe to treat. 
and as that. soon as you kind of do that people people do do ex accept yeah. it and looking back is there anything that you would have liked to have known um when you're graduating that you learned or listened to others now i think i think our some of our i think on specific to our training i would have there were there was elements of our training I think I just didn't see the relevance to it and, I, and at the time and whilst it was all interesting and it's all knowledge and so on I didn't feel it was particularly relevant to what what we were going what we were doing or what we would be doing in, in the future and I think there is there's there's some gaps in it what one area I think that would have really liked it was a would be a stronger emphasis on exercise sort of exercise rehabilitation um, that that would have been really really helpful now to some degree technology has can alleviate that because there's so many of those rehab systems you can buy which you know because it's a bit of technology it's a bit of IT and it's essentially it's data is it's it's so easy to kind of go you know lower back pain and then it'll just list all the exercises that somebody else has put the intelligence into and the thinking to go here's 50 different lower back exercises you can you can have for that particular person so but i don't think technology never replicates knowledge no sorry it never replaces knowledge i think so that's one area I think we would have hugely, I think we would have hugely benefited, absolutely and, benefited from. Yeah, absolutely. And so what kind of courses or books are you reading now that have not just filled in that gap of knowledge, but just get you excited in general in terms of the profession? Um, so I, I I respond much better to either courses or, or watching things. Uh, reading, reading stuff, not, not particularly, not, not great for me. So I, it's, it's just not how I've, how I've ever learned on that. So I've, I've done a number of courses um, and I quite like, I, I really like technique courses because that's kind ultimately what we're, what we're doing. I think it's, I also like sort of short, short where you'll get videos and so on, you know, 10, 15 minutes that's addressing a specific issue, you know, be it sort of ankylosing spondylitis or be it corda equina or something like that, where it is kind of, you know, here's the key information that you, you, need, to, you need to learn on that. I find those really, really beneficial. And again, it's, it's, there's so much available on the internet that it's it takes it takes quite a quite a bit of effort to sort of cut through stuff that isn't so good to find the valuable things and i think the other thing is that you know there's there's endless endless osteopaths there's endless things you can follow physios chiropractors everything else on instagram or, or facebook and so on but with a lot of those is they kind of they're either trying to flog you something 
So there's a kind of business driver behind it or a revenue driver behind it. Or it's coming back to that you know, philosophical belief that they have, or they have got a very strong bias towards a particular thing. And I think is with an osteopath, I think it's really important that it needs to resonate with you. Because if it doesn't resonate with you, no matter how good it is, you're not going to put it into practice. You know, I'll watch things. I think, yeah, I get that. I understand it, but yeah, yeah, not for me, you know. So I think that that's, that's quite a difficult thing. There's so much information out there, but how much of it is valuable is, is another thing. Yeah, and how much of it is applicable straight after? Yeah, because I think applicable is the right word. Yeah, yeah. Where you you come out of it, you it's interesting. It's it's great, but how do I use this now with my patient on a Monday morning? Yes, yeah. Or it's it's incredibly specific, and to that point, is applicable. You just think, yeah, I'll remember that when that one in one thousand pages patience comes true and the other thing like i was saying earlier about those things where where you see osteopaths and doing little videos prescribing certain exercise exercises and things is it's again is going are you going to get a 50 year old bloke to do that you know a guy who was a builder or you know a a, a woman who's been a seamstress sort of working on a sewing machine for 40 50 years and gets up in the morning and is like, oh, stiff and sore. You know, they're not going to do some of those things. They're just not, they, they're not physically able or they just think it's silly or irrelevant and so on. And as you say, yeah, it has to be appropriate. Yeah. And so where do you see yourself, your practice developing and changing or sort of growing in the next five years? Um, I really like, and I know that this probably isn't, isn't what most people would say, I really like general practice. I really do like general practice. Um, where, you know, people will say, is, oh, I'm going to go off and I'm going to specialize in shoulders or I'm going to specialize in necks or I'm going to specialize in ankles or I'm going to do whatever thing it is like that. And, and I understand that and I get that and that's appropriate to that person. But I think, because I love the variety, it's the, it is like, if you're in general practice, eight out of 10 people are going to come in with either lower back pain mid back, or mid back pain, back pain. You know, it's, it's kind of what we do is, but 20% won't. And I, and I, to me, that 20%, makes the other 80% worthwhile, if you know from me, if you know what I mean, because it's that variety of what, what it is. And again, it's all age groups. Um, I don't really treat babies or small children. It's kind of, you know, mid-teens upwards. I, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely fine with that, you know, 12, 13, 14-year-olds upwards, something like that. But babies and cranial and so on, it's, that, that's, that's not for me. But I that's how I, I want to see it going going forward is or that that's what I that's what I enjoy is yeah. 
and the breadth of different things that we do is, you know, I'm never going to be like, I'm, I'm only going to do HVTs or I'm never going to do HVTs. I, I, I also struggle with that where people will say, oh, I'm never going to do HVTs. HVTs are appropriate in a certain sort of set of circumstances. And actually, in some of those circumstances, it could be entirely psychological reasons that it's appropriate. Because if that makes the patient feel better and you're not actually doing them any harm, why wouldn't you have that as part of your treatment? Yeah, and it's an extra tool, essentially. Yes, exactly, yeah. It's something that... Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, it's, yes, you say it's an extra tool. It's there if you need to do it. But if, if, if you stop doing it, you're going to get out of practice of doing it and you're not going to come back to it. Yeah. And I, what's, what was really interesting to hear from you just then was, you know, staying in general practice and treating a broad range of, mm. of conditions or, you know, mid-teens and upwards. Because a lot of the times I feel, I find that most people, one, don't understand what osteopathy is. And then if um, a layer on that is they don't realize what we can treat and how much we do treat. And it's not just we treat sciatic pain or we treat frozen shoulder or lateral epicondylite we treat mm. everything yeah yeah completely it is it's kind of you know everything from the base of from the from the sort of the you know putting aside whether the bones and the skull move or not oh that's a controversial right. topic in itself i might have to bring you back to talk about that in itself we'll, we'll put that to one side um effectively everything from the base of your skull to the to the ends of your toes moves in your body everything it you you know even all the viscera and stuff again not for me but that's all moving as well there is nothing in our body that is that is stuck in one place and designed to stay stay in one place and you're you're absolutely right we can we can treat the whole lot of it everything the whole way down through the body we can we can absolutely treat and i think is that it's that classic thing isn't it people kind of going is like I've got lower back pain. Why are you fiddling with my knees? You know, what, will you leave my ankle alone? Or things like that. And you go, well, actually, this is the reason I'm doing it. And then when you explain it to people, people go, oh, actually, yeah, that makes entire sense. You know, and I, and I quite like that. Everything is connected. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so where do you see the profession or where would you like to see the profession heading towards in the next five, 10 years? Um, I think, as I, I kind of said earlier, is I, I think the profession needs to recognize that it needs to become much more evidence-based. I think there are, that, and that's going to come through regulation. I think that that's absolutely going to come through regulation. And you can see it, it's already starting to flow through regulation and coming through GEOSC and so on. As by initially, people see it as incredibly restrictive to kind of say, we can only advertise that we can treat these things because they're the only things that are supported by the research to show that we have a positive effect on. And then people say, but I've been doing this for years and my patients really like it and I think there's a there's a difference between patients liking something and it having a positive effect 
I would imagine if you said, well, at the end of the treatment, they pay me and I give a tenner back to them. Most patients would like that. <laughs> I'm not sure that's kind of, you know, <laughs> supported by research and a po positive thing. So I think, and my challenge to the, the people go, who go the, yeah, but I've got all this thing is like, okay, do some research and demonstrate that that thing that your patient likes is having a positive effect and is having a healing effect. And if you can and show the evidence, that thing that you do suddenly moves on to the list of things that's supported by evidence. Is I like, don't keep saying, well, they really like it, produce the evidence to show that it's got the effect. And suddenly it becomes something we can then justifiably say, we can do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, so, and I, and I, and I think is that we as a possession profession need to move with that. Um, otherwise, we're going to be left behind, and we're going to be viewed as alternative. Yeah. On yeah. that, this, this idea that, and I, I also think because, you know, I, I've got two qualifications, which I, I still have to keep going. I still have to do CPD and osteopathy, and I still have to do my accountancy, CPD, and so on and so forth. Is and so I'm, I'm a member of two professional bodies or a pay per subscription of two professional bodies is my accountancy one and the GEOSC one. And they are very, very different in that for the accountancy one, there is an element of protecting the public. So there are certain regulations around audit reports and so on and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, if somebody does a, does a bad bit of accounting for want of a better phrase, they're not going to hurt somebody. <laughs> if we do bad osteopathy, we can physically hurt somebody or actually mint hurt or somebody. GEOSC is there to protect the public. Mm -hmm. That is their job. That job is not going to change. Their job is not there to promote osteopathy. That is not their job. It, I mean, that's my understanding of, of the things. And people moaning and bitching and whinging about GIOS not, you know, promoting. That that's that's not their that's not their job. There are certain things which they could do better, certainly. I mean I think kind of abdicating responsibility to the advertising standards agency is around what we can and cannot advertise. It's a bit more than kind of you know, we're not baked beans. It's a bit more complicated than that. So I think that that's that there's a bit more work to be done to be done there. But it is, it's, it's for the osteopathic profession to promote the osteopathic profession. And I think it's for the osteopathic profession to demonstrate the benefits of osteopathy. Yeah. And that has to be through data and research and evidence. Yeah. You know, otherwise we get, you know, we get Trump kind of going, I take malaria tablets because, you know, the bloke in the pub told me it was a good idea. <laughs> It doesn't count as evidence. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, the, the, we as a profession, I suppose, need to drive the research, to drive the evidence, to bring more gravitas in, to the profession and what we treat and how we treat and why we treat it this way. Yeah, and I, and I think also is, is another thing is that we, we, I think there has to be a, is recognition that the other professions that physiotherapy and chiropractor, you know, 
in the same way as the osteopathy is, there is really good bits associated with those professions. And there are bits that are not necessarily we would want to take on. And I think there are bits associated with osteopathy, which will be valuable for the others as well. I mean, whilst we do, it's a, you would always want to preserve osteopathy essentially as a standalone profession. I'm not convinced that it's going to, it's go, it's in, in a, in its, regulated format, I, I can see a point in the future where you will have osteopathy, physiotherapy, and chiropractor essentially under a single regulatory, regulatory body. We've got three of them at the moment. Yeah. At some point, somebody will say, why? Huh. Yeah. yeah. Why is there a need for three different regulatory bodies? Yeah. You know, when you when you take away the kind of the how we do it, we're all kind of doing, you know. Well, the aims are very similar. Yeah. The what we do. It's that's what differs. How we do it. Similar. Yeah. But the effect on the body and the person essentially is is very similar. Yeah, it's the how is different between yeah. us. And actually, when you kind of split that away, we're not, you know, we're not 100% different to each other. No, and I can see loads of similarities between myself and, and the physiotherapist that I work mm. alongside. And I'm sure I have not worked with a chiropractor myself, but I'm sure there'll be similarities with them as well. Yeah, like we call it, you know, HVTs. They, they, uh, um, Kairos call it adjustments, don't they? And I think physios call it something, they call it a grade five. Manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. This guy is the same thing. Don't tell anyone. Apples and oranges, we're all fruit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but on that note, Brian, um, I'm so thankful for you to, you know, take your time out and spend that time talking to me. And I've learned loads from you. And what I think is. And this is the whole point of this series of interviews and podcasts is just to get information out there, you know, spread it around and not like COVID, let's not do that, but, <laughs> you know, just share, share information and let's all as a profession educate each other and all rise up. Yeah, there was, there was only one thing I wanted to say and, and it was coming back to you, the point that you at the very outset where you were saying about uh, students thinking about entering into osteopathy and so on. And there was an experience that I had in, in clinic in, in year four. And it was with, with, with my colleague when we, were, when we used to work as, when we were doing it, working as pairs. And it was where it was actually his patient, but you know, we'd go in and we'd observe our, uh, observe our colleague. And it was, it was something which by the end of the year four where, you know, I was, pretty much running on empty you know you get to the end of your phone you're just waiting to get the last day at clinic so you can have some time off and then he's absolutely exhausted so this was about april may time or something towards heading towards the end of the year and uh my colleague he had a patient who had suffered severe trauma in a in a conflict zone and he was just in this this 
chap was just in all over pain and every every movement everything and had and had had lost um a limb and so on and every movement every action w was painful and i remember one of the tutors came in and was was supporting and, and helping with, with this patient and, and said you know have you tried this have you tried that and so on and so forth etc etc and this particular tutor probably has 25 years experience as an osteopath and the with that particular patient the effect it had on that on the osteopath the tutor with 25 years how the empathy that that that, that tutor had towards that patient i mean i was amazed and i was thinking like there were very very few professions where somebody who's 25 years in that an instance like that can have such an, a profound effect on them and I think that to me that said so much about osteopathy and I'm sure it's the similar in physiotherapy and I'm sure it's the similar in chiropractor but you know in my other career I've met accountants and lawyers and solicitors and you know professionals who 25 years in are like oh for god's sake is this ever going to end whereas with this particular tutor you know the effect it had on him that we weren't able to actually do anything for this patient because he was in such acute pain i thought that that's a sounding i thought well 25 years down the line if i'm still doing osteopathy i want to have that enthusiasm and i want to be able to you know i want a similar situation have a similar effect on me you know and i thought that was that was absolutely incredible and that completely re-energized me at the at at the end of year four yeah and i was speaking that's i think that's really powerful because i was speaking to somebody else and they were talking about what a privilege it is to be an osteopath hmm. and that rings true one year into graduating or, or 25 you're always being affected and you're always affecting other people yeah so absolutely yeah uh, absolutely bored, certainly never bored no no you're not because and especially with new patients because like you have no idea what's coming through the door no, no idea what's coming through the door and essentially you're, you're problem solving all the time not just yeah. even in their consult in their first session but three or four sessions in if something isn't working okay you've got to reevaluate your whole management plan and wonder and think why isn't it working or what is working what do we do differently yeah and but the the downside of that is and I, i'm going to name check the person in this one who said it was and is it was something tom tom hewitson said in in year four when he was teaching us he said as an osteopath in clinic you can never have an off day you have to be on it because the day that that off day is the day that you will miss the really serious pathology because you're, you know, oh, I'm a bit tired today or, you know, I'm going to have, you know, you can't have that. Yeah. You can't I'm, have that. Absolutely. I love Tom. I'll give him another hug. <laughs> <laughs> That's an inside joke. When <laughs> <laughs> we're allowed to do that again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, yeah. But, yeah, I, I fully agree. And on that note, thank you so much. You're very welcome.
really enjoyable. And hopefully we'll get to see each other very yeah. soon. In person. See you soon. Bye-bye.